Thank you guys. That was soul-stirring worship and so consistent with our theme. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn in them to Psalm 27. That's where we'll be this morning. And as you do, I just uh, want to mention, you, you probably know this. This is no surprise to you. One of the dangerous things about preaching is that God often puts you in places that test your own conviction about the things you're proclaiming to others. There's the danger of hypocrisy, isn't there? The danger of trying to just deliver the goods and services without letting his word touch your own heart. That's not just true for preachers, is it? At Grace, we practice the priesthood of the believer. That means that everybody who has been saved by Jesus and is indwelt by the Spirit serves in ministry, in capacity, in some fashion. That means this danger is true for you too. This danger is there when you teach Sunday school or when you lead a core group or when you encourage a hurting friend. That danger is in play. Well, I can tell you that this week and really this month has been dangerous for our family in, in, in some ways like that. I have wrestled with Psalm 27. I told Kenny earlier this week that I could have wished that somebody else were tasked with preaching this sermon to me, but I've found instead that evidently God wants me to preach it to me. It's because he's kind. We felt uh, insecure, emotionally tired, not in control, forced to wait. And so I've asked again and again, shall I say one thing and do another? Maybe you've been there before. There is mercy from the Lord in requiring us to practice what we preach and insisting that we take our own medicine. Don't you usually find that the people you admire the most and are most eager to listen to are the ones who don't only watch their doctrine but also their lives so that the messages they teach and the messages that they live are compatible and integrated Well, I'm thankful for more growing pains. They're not a sign of perfection or arrival, but I do think they're a sign of life. Having said that, however, waiting on the Lord is just plain hard, isn't it? We wait for all kinds of stuff. We wait for sanctification. Sometimes our own, sometimes someone else's. We wait for people to make good choices. We wait on the Lord's guidance. We wait for deliverance of one kind or another. We wait for the redemption of our bodies. We wait for relational reconciliation. And we wait for the wicked to no longer prosper. I can tell you in just a little snapshot of our story, one of the things that we're waiting for these days is a home to pop on the market that fits our family's sweet spot We received notification a few weeks back that we have to be out of the house, that we have lived in and loved and raised our children in for a decade by the end of July. It's a wonderful home. We're so thankful for it. We are not weepy people, but we have been this past month. The owner, who's rightly entitled to his house, wants to move back in. In our feeling displaced and dislocated, there's been a lot of turbulence And so this psalm has been good medicine. But my turbulence isn't your turbulence. I know that your concerns are not the same as mine as you come in here today, but I bet you have some. And I know that if you're not in a season of turbulence currently, you have been there or you will be there again at some point in the future. So today we need to gather together around God's word and see not only his hard but also his good purposes in bringing to us these types of seasons.
from a good and sovereign king. See, God not only ordains seasons of fullness in our lives, but also seasons of leanness in our circumstances so that we will learn and embrace one absolutely critical lesson. Here it is. God himself is the very best blessing. If we're going to put it in the terms of our psalm this morning, God means to be our one thing. So we want to see how David experienced this, and we want to see how you and I can experience it as well. It is an absolutely critical lesson. It is the point of every test, and it will be the point of the final test as well. Preparing for that test is hard, but nothing could be more important. So let's read Psalm 27 and ask the Lord's blessing on our time and savor together. Of David... The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask that you would meet with us in your word this morning and show us a glimpse of your captivating beauty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you hit turbulence, where do you turn? Where do you run for relief or hope or safety? Again, to put it in David's terms, what's your one thing? What do you at least sometimes functionally believe that you can't live without? Where do stress, anxiety, and disappointment cause you to run? Maybe we could think about it this way. From Psalm 56, verse 3, how might you at least sometimes complete this sentence? When I am afraid, I will trust in money, food, distraction, self-pity, research, 
Well, the good news is that the principle that is given to us in this psalm helps us face all of these questions. It equips us in both our gaining and our losing and everything in between. And the scriptures are full of this. Kenny showed us some this morning already. Other passages put it in other terms, and the constant refrain must mean that it's very important. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding the pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Or David in Psalm 63, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Or Paul in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. These are all different ways of making the same point. We were made for one thing, and the one thing is the Lord himself, which is why St. Augustine so long ago famously prayed to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Well, Psalm 27 is only introduced with the heading of David. There are no other background details about the context of where this comes from. And it may be the case that this psalm reflects a stage later on in David's life. There does seem to be a tested and tried maturity. The psalm ends in his prayers for at least uh, the immediate deliverance haven't been answered yet. We can't be sure. When Jackson preached on Psalm 16 a couple of weeks ago, he pointed out that often the psalms have either lack headings altogether or have headings that lack specificity. And that's purposeful. That's intentional. By including David's, in this case, experience into the psalms, it broadens out his experience to provide a fitting word for all of God's people in all kinds of different scenarios. So while David's enemies here may actually involve a literal army, somebody else may be confronting the army of ravaging cancer. Those are different problems, and they have the same answer. Now, by the way, don't think for a moment that because you can read a psalm in a minute or two that they were written in a minute or two or that the experience that give rise to these compositions transpired in a minute or two. While it is absolutely the case that these psalms were inspired by the Holy Spirit, they took blood and sweat and tears and time to compose. So they're reliable roadmaps for the people of God. They point the way for dealing with the realities of life and emotions in a fallen world, and they invite us to step into them. I see two key points in our psalm. Very simply, the first one is, what do you seek when you have to wait on the Lord? What shall we seek when we have to wait on the Lord? The second point is, how do you seek it? Okay, point one, what do you seek? Point two, how do you seek it? The first one, We notice in this psalm that David is clearly enduring dramatically distressing situations. This is not little stuff. It's not even the composition of a few little things. Evildoers are assailing him in verse 2. An army is encamping against him in verse 3. He calls this the day of trouble in verse 5. He says his enemies are all around in verse 6. His mother and father have forsaken him. Verse 10, and false witnesses are breathing out violence against him in verse 12. This is a big deal, and there is the potential for all kinds of anxious waiting because much that David loves is lost. To put it in other terms, some of David's favorite lights have either gone out or they've started to flicker. Let me tell you where I get this uh, image from. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book on perseverance and faith linked to the beauty of God and the character of God. And the title that I'm taking is from a scene in The Fellowship of the Ring. 
It's the scene where Galadriel is passing out all the implements to the fellowship on her shore before they sail off to Mordor. And as she comes to Frodo, uh, she's given out a bunch of other implements, but as she comes to Frodo, she hands him a vial of light. She says, this is the light of Erendil, our most beloved star. And then she says these words, may it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. That's a compelling image, isn't it? That's a recognition in their story, as it is the case in our story, that there is a day coming when every light save one will expire. And hope that is falsely placed is hope that will disappoint when that day comes. So we can read this psalm and we can ask of David, when all around his soul gives way, what proves to be his hope and stay? And we see that the light that he seeks is not first and foremost relief from the immediate distress. Verse 13, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living, seems to imply that he thinks he will be delivered. But he believes he will be delivered as a byproduct of getting the one thing that he truly wants. So in the face of terrible odds and and extreme terror, notice where his focus goes. Look at verse 4 again. One thing. Have I asked? That will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire or meditate in his temple. And verse 8 You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. So he's surrounded and he's threatened, and he worships. He seeks the house of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord, and the face of the Lord. Why these three? He seeks these three because they're all indicative of God's presence. The one thing that he wants more than anything. But the beauty of the Lord and the face of the Lord are inaccessible to sinners apart from the mediation that takes place in the house of the Lord. So David seeks the one thing in the one place that answers his greatest dilemma. And his greatest dilemma is not a surrounding army, but is instead his own sin. This, then, is David's mighty fortress. Now, we know that David wasn't a perfect man. Other psalms reflect that he had days where he struggled far more than this. It took time and repentance and humility for his faith to mature to the the degree that we see it here in Psalm 27. But when I contrast David's response to these circumstances in Psalm 27 with the knee-jerk response of my own heart to the turbulence we've hit in our housing situation, I've noticed how quickly my focus so often goes into frantic problem-solving mode, alternating with self-pity. Try to solve a problem, no solution I can provide, feel sorry for myself. Try to solve a problem, no solution I can provide, feel sorry for myself. Toggle, 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 toggle found myself thinking, I haven't been on the MLS listings uh, site in the last five minutes. Maybe if I hop on and then it'll be there. My uh, wife has given me an image in this past week as we have pondered this together just to kind of contemplate. It's the contrasting image of the restless infant with the restful one. You've seen this before? Right? Mom's trying to soothe a little one who is anxious and restless and is just fighting for all he's worth not to put his head down and be at peace. I'm told I was, that's, that's, who, that's the kind of baby I was. 
But then there's the other image, right? There's the other image. It's the beautiful image of the baby that has completely collapsed his weight on his mother's chest. At rest, peace, repose. And this seems to be a little bit of a snapshot of what David is doing here, even as he is surrounded by armies and abandoned by his family. He's at rest. And the reason that he's at rest is because what he treasures most is secure. Think about that for a moment. We all have a one thing, and we need to know that distress does not create our one thing. All distress does is to reveal it. So in the hard place of waiting for whatever it is your soul is craving and questioning, think again about what bubbles up sometimes in your heart as, a, as an unworthy one thing. What do you pursue under distress as though it had the capacity to give you rest? And if something comes to mind, I would just say use that to your advantage because you know where the anxiety comes from. It comes from trying to safeguard a treasure that is vulnerable. Our own lives are vulnerable. But David shows us here how trust-stabilizing it is to live from a posture of knowing that our greatest treasure isn't vulnerable and can't be threatened. That's why the fight of the Christian life is fundamentally a fight to be satisfied in God. And that is why the prosperity gospel so horrifically lets people down. The treasures of health and wealth will fail. They can and will be taken. There is a day on which they will not stand. We also see in this that in God's providential care, his tests, while hard, again, are merciful. Because he knows that a day is coming for each and every one of us where every light we've ever loved will go out. And there's only one light that can survive that day. So like a great trainer, God, our Father, is preparing his children for their final exam. You see this all throughout the scriptures. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are threatened with the prospect of being thrown into the fiery furnace if they don't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. What do they say? Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, their lives are not a treasure worth protecting at the expense of forsaking the one thing. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew ten twenty eight. He said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The early church martyr, Justin Martyr, understood this as well. He defended Christianity to the Roman emperor in the face of, in the face of threats. He said, you can kill us but you cannot hurt us. It's a man who understands where his treasure is found. What are all these people saying? They're saying what Paul says in Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even death, can take this treasure if it's properly placed. And notice again that David is seeking God here not mainly because he thinks God is useful to rescue him from this particular threat, but because he thinks God is inherently beautiful. 
So he does seek God in the day of trouble, verse 5, but that's not the only day he's seeking him. In verse 4, again, he yearns to be in the house of the Lord, enjoying his beauty all the days of his life, not just on difficult days, every day. In other words, God has grown David to the place where God is not a means to the ends of protecting some other goodies for him. God, for David, has become the end in himself. And since that treasure can't be taken away, David is as steadfast as we see him here in Psalm 27. And I would just add that this treasure is much more than just forgiveness, as amazing as forgiveness would be if that were all it was. But because of the atonement and because of forgiveness and because of the ministry at the mercy seat in the temple, David is promised what he has ultimately learned to long for. And that is to be with God as his child forever. He doesn't just get forgiveness, he gets a father. He gets family. He gets to go home. Point two, if that's what we seek, how do we seek it? Well, I don't know about you, but I read this psalm and I think I want that kind of steadfastness. So our question here is how do we make David's treasure our treasure? And now we watch not only what he seeks, but how he seeks it. We have seen that he seeks it in the temple, and the temple exists because God's presence with his people has been disrupted by their sin. When the place he desires to go is the temple, or in his particular case, the tabernacle, he's moving forward into his troubles by remembering, by not forgetting what God has done and promised to do. This is where he seeks the beauty of the Lord. He seeks the beauty of the Lord in the place of atonement. He's recognizing what God has already pledged himself to do, what these sacrifices, as we come to understand, foreshadow and symbolize. In other words, David isn't uncertain here because the outcome of the full enjoyment of God's beauty and presence has already been decided for him. And no army of earth or hell can take that away. Contrast that with self-pity or the fear of man, and we find that those expressions of the heart, what do they do? They so often forget God's works, don't they? Like Israel forgot her own deliverance time and again, like you and I struggle to do as the waves of life rise and fall. In God's sovereignty, his seasons of waiting are seasons of mercy because they test what we remember and what we forget. They test what we love and what we run to. They test what we treasure. So they're part of the training. When we find that the heart is running to a lesser light in the face of our difficulty, the good news of the gospel is repent, get up as often as necessary, walk with God again and again. So David seeks his one thing in the temple, and he seeks it with a focus on remembering that his greatest treasure has already been secured. But now we can see that the way that he stokes the fires of his heart is summarized with three terms, gazing in verse 4, inquiring or meditating in verse 4, and seeking in verse 8. Gazing, meditating, seeking. These are high-intensity terms. You know what they're not? They're not speed-reading. They're not skimming. Analysis by itself won't do the job. This is soaking, savoring, 
on the taste buds of the soul and the way that we would savor a delicious morsel on the taste buds of our tongue. This is the language of adoration and satisfaction and enjoyment. And we also notice that this gazing is something that David does continually and not occasionally. He's doing it in the day of trouble. But if you remember from Randy's sermon on Psalm 1 last week, what is the blessed man characterized by? He's characterized by meditating day and night, continually, frequently. And the result was a well-watered, fruit-bearing, drought-resistant kind of soul. That's what we see in David's life here, not perfectly, but he's not just surviving. He's bearing fruit under these conditions, which must mean that he's found some very special treasure to savor. So here's a question. Are you in the habit of regularly gazing on the beauty of the Lord in the pages of Scripture and the place of the mercy seat? On the one hand, we already know how to meditate every single one of us. And we're all in the habit of doing, re- doing it regularly. In fact, we can't help but meditate on what we believe will truly satisfy and secure us. Here's what I mean. If you know how to fantasize, you know how to meditate. If you know how to daydream, you know how to meditate. You already do it. What are those behaviors? Those are just forms of mental chewing on whatever it is we find beautiful or hope-giving or relief-providing or escape-inducing. So the problem is not necessarily what we're doing, but what is the object of our hope and trust in the moments of our meditation. In other words, we don't need to start a practice that we don't know how to do. We need to find the right object in the practice that we're already doing. Here's two other statements to compare about meditating in the Psalms. In Psalm 63, verse 6, David declares that he will be satisfied in God when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Okay, that's, he's not sitting, that's not formal Bible study, right? This is the drifting off moments before falling asleep. What's he doing? He's meditating. And the moments before he falls asleep, what's running through his mind is the beauty of God and the glory of the Lord. <clears throat> Contrast that with what he says about the wicked man in Psalm 36, 4. He plots trouble or iniquity while on his bed. Same scenario. He's on his bed, falling asleep. What does he ponder? He's fantasizing about the plotting of some iniquity. But that's meditation too. It's just meditation on what he believes will bring him satisfaction. These two characters are behaving in at least somewhat similar respects. The the meditation is unavoidably taking place. It's similar times of day, similar contexts, and very different objects of delight. Well, maybe you're wondering if this gazing and meditating thing is so practical and so important. Is Is there any help we can offer for how to do it? Maybe you've had the experience that many people have had that you genuinely try and try and try to do this, but your mind goes all over the place and the opportunity for beauty is just bouncing off the walls of your heart. I can't give you an exact formula. And even if I could, the formula would not be enough by itself without the enabling of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you, because Scripture tells us, 
that the scriptures are the chief instrument with which the spirit is pleased to fan the flame of faith in our lives. As a rule, we can put it this way. The Holy Spirit of God applies the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to the people of God to conform us into greater likeness to the Son of God. I'll give you that one again. The Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the people of God to conform us into greater likeness to the Son of God. So if we're seeking the beauty of God and the Word of God depending upon the Spirit of God, that's the right place to go. And the goal of going there is to stoke the fires of faith in our only secure treasure. When that happens, people truly do begin to become conformed more and more into the likeness of his son. You may find that people who walk with you and know you well in this journey notice over the course of time and say things like, you know, you're not as quick-triggered to self-pity as you used to be. Or materialism or fill in the blank. Maybe I can offer just a little bit more help. For me, in a time of great anxiety and fear a few years back, I spoke with a counselor. I have always been prone to anxiety and hypervigilance. You should ask Luen sometimes about how I occasionally still jolt out of bed in the middle of the night at the sound of the slightest disturbance of my sleep and flee down the hallway into the imaginary fray with some imaginary attacker that I'm absolutely sure is invading our home and assaulting our family. I have terrorized our children as I have stupored out into the hallway in a half sleep, prepared to attack. But on this particular occasion, I was experiencing anxiety and panic over the loss of some precious lights in my life. And the loss of those lights was causing me to sense the vulnerability of some of my other precious lights. The counselor had a number of things to, uh, to, to recommend to me. Some of them you would find amusing if I had the time to tell you. But the number one thing he told me was, meditate. That's not all he said, but that was his main prescription. He assigned me passages of scripture, and he gave me a plan to meditate on them, not only cerebrally, but also experientially. And it was good medicine. I'm not done with fear, but I do think it's safe to say my wife and friends might tell you that it doesn't have quite the same stranglehold on me that it did back then. In his book on prayer, Tim Keller argues that meditation is the often forgotten link between Bible reading on the one hand and prayer on the other. He says that meditation helps take what's studied in the mind down into the heart before breathing it back out in prayer and praise to the Lord. And I found that to be the case. So while I'm not giving you a protocol, maybe I can at least tell you what's been helpful to me. And if it's helpful to you, so much the better. I have spent the majority of my non-reading, that is to say specifically meditating time in Scripture in the Psalms because of the way they speak to the emotions of the inner man. I have had to learn to go slow, 
taking days and sometimes weeks to get through a single psalm. I've had to make my peace with the fact that the goal is not just to read the psalm, but to inhabit it. And I have learned for my own ADD reasons to write out most of my meditations before praying them out. It just helps me focus. But with enough give and take to stop whenever the Spirit strikes and go wherever he calls. I have also found it enriching to write to God in the second person and not about God in the third person. And it's been important to seek quiet places to prevent an undistracted gaze. Here's the six questions he gave me. Six questions. They're not rocket science, but they have helped me take beauty, the beauty of the Lord, into my soul. Number one, what does this passage show me about you, God? What does this show me about you, God? Number two, what does it show me about you, Jesus? Three, What does it show me about your love? So those first three questions are simply an attempt to help me see and savor the beauty of the Lord, to be satisfied with that. And again, often, I just, in one sitting, I'll just get through one question often, and that's okay, just pick it up where you left off. Number four, who doubts and disbelieves what this passage shows me about you? Who doubts and disbelieves? Number five, who trusts what it shows, and how do they cling to you? Who trusts? David trusts. How does he cling? Six, what changes does this passage call for in my life? What changes, or how does the Holy Spirit want to work these truths into my soul? That's it. Six questions. Along the way and afterwards, I try to go into a time of prayer and worship and savoring, taking something or things from the passage that stood out, savoring it in prayer, sending it back up to the Lord in praise, and passing it on to someone else in encouragement. So when I was in Psalm 27 a few months back, What preoccupied my gaze was the mercy seat of Jesus' sacrifice as the fulfillment of what's taking place in the temple at Psalm 27. I tried to savor and bathe in the perfect kissing of justice and peace at the cross of Jesus. Finish one psalm, move on to the next. Let me add one other thing about gazing well. Because we all have flawed sight, we need help from others to see and savor our one thing. You absolutely must do this individually, but we absolutely also need to do this in community as well. We all get rocked sometimes. We lose focus. We need grace groups, accountability partners, spouses to point the way and help us see when we stagger. Again, the fact that David is doing this in the temple or the tabernacle, he's doing this in the company of priests, or at least in his heart he is, who are conducting ministry, interceding for the people, shepherding and pointing the way. And again, at Grace, in the New Covenant, we practice the priesthood of every believer, every member ministry. There are leaders, yes, but every believer is a minister of the gospel in their circle of influence to help keep one another on the path. If we had time here, I'd do my own personal Pictures of Grace segment, and I'd show you a few people 
who've helped me see and savor when my sight has been dim. I could rattle off dozens right now, including a few who have brought me to tears of thanksgiving and gratitude this week as we've struggled with disappointment and displacement from our home, anxiousness over where we'll go next. I know you could rattle some off as well. So I would encourage you to do just that over lunch and grace group. Talk about some of them. Maybe talk to some of them and give God the glory for how they've helped you grow in steadfastness. Well, the principle that we find in Psalm 27 is, as, is the same for us today as it ever was. We become like what we long for. We become like what we gaze upon. Check 2 Corinthians 3.18 later on. But the amazing news is that we see more clearly than David did. He saw the temple. We see the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed there. We behold the mercy seat of the Lamb, which I would say is simultaneously not pretty and remarkably beautiful. It was brutal, wasn't it? And beautiful. We're going to practice that sort of beholding together now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We want to use the taste buds on our tongues to encourage and direct the taste buds on our hearts. I want to say three things about how we take the Lord's Supper at grace, and then I will call the servers forward after that. First, if you've never trusted Jesus, we don't want you to worry about this meal. This meal is not the most important thing that you can do if you've never trusted him. With Jesus, first things come first. What you need is not the symbol of remembrance, but the substance of faith that the meal represents. Maybe if you're here and you've never trusted Christ before, maybe you feel threatened and insecure because of your sin. Maybe you feel surrounded by it. Maybe you feel like you really grasp what the justice of God requires towards you. And maybe you feel like you've never had a treasure that's invulnerable and secure beyond even death and judgment. If that's you, what do you do? Well, I would say that the good news is that if you already believe those things about yourself, you are primed to see the cross as precious. If you have even an inkling of that kind of feeling, please spend this next few moments in prayer and then talk to me when the service is done. The meal will come in due time. Come to Jesus first. Number two, if you're a professing believer, even if you're not a member at Grace, we welcome you to the Lord's table to eat and be satisfied once again. But I do have one caution to make. That is, if you're clinging to some cherished sin, then it would be dangerous to take this meal. What do I mean by clinging? Here's what I have in mind. I have in mind someone who, as they're sitting here, in the back of his mind, the wheels are already turning on the next indulgence of some sin that he's simply unwilling to let go. To take the Lord's Supper while simultaneously making such plans is how consciences get seared. And it's how Jesus can come to be regarded as a nice thing, but not the one thing. If that is you, all you have to do is repent. And we exhort you to do that this morning. Whatever that cherished thing is, lay it down in your heart and commit your way to the Lord and then come and take this meal. 
It doesn't mean that you'll be perfect, but repentance simply begins with the decision to turn away from a false thing that either does not love you or cannot last. You don't have to be perfect to come. If that were the criterion, no one could come. The only criterion is empty-handed trust. Finally, if you are a repentant believer who hasn't yet been baptized, we do welcome you to come. But we also encourage you to talk to a pastor at Grace about getting baptized at some point in the future. And we do not say that because we think baptism saves you. We don't. But baptism is just another way, very much like the Lord's Supper itself, that Jesus wants us to use our bodies in the experience of beholding and identifying with his beauty. Servers, if you would please come forward. We will have several stations in terms of how we practice the Lord's Supper at Grace. We'll have several stations around the front. To my right, your left, there will be a station that is gluten-free. And As you come in just a moment, our procedure is you come forward, the lines will form, you tear a piece of the bread, the server will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. You'll dip it in the cup, the server will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you can take at your discretion and and, and spend some moments in prayer and we'll conclude with worship shortly after that. So when you're ready, come, taste, savor, your one thing.